Today is the first full day of the Biden presidency, and I have a homework assignment for all of my listeners, especially those who voted against Joe Biden, who voted for Donald Trump. Call me and tell me what Joe Biden can do to persuade you that he really means it when he says, we want to bring our country together. Enough division, too much division. We're a better country when we're united. That's your homework assignment, and I'll explain why on The Dirt Show. Today, on the very first day of Joe Biden's term as President of the United States, the first full day, I am posing a challenge to my viewers and listeners. Yes, to my viewers and listeners. I know that a lot of you are Trump supporters. I know that a lot of you are conservatives and Republicans. I know some of you are liberals, some of you are Democrats, but from the calls I've gotten, a lot of my viewers are conservatives. A lot of them supported President uh, Trump and a lot of them oppose President uh, Biden. So here's my challenge to you, to my listeners and viewers. You heard President Biden yesterday in his inauguration speech call for unity. Uh, Fox called it a hollow call for unity. And, you know, other critics said it was a fake call for unity. I didn't see it that way. It looked to me like a genuine call to try to bring people together. I've known Joe Biden for 40 years. He's that kind of guy. He was the guy who always crossed the aisle. He was the guy, remember, he was criticized for talking to segregationists and making deals with bigots in the Senate. Yeah, he did that. That's who he is. He will try to bring people together. Will he succeed? I don't know. But here's my challenge to my listeners, particularly my conservative, anti-Biden, pro-Trump listeners. Tell me, call me, tell me what do you think Joe Biden can do to make his call for unity and bringing people together a reality? What can he do to persuade you that he's serious? What can he do to convince you that he is going to be the president for all Americans. He went out of his way to say to those who voted against him, some of you who voted against him, give me an opportunity. Keep your mind open. Let's hear from you. Let me know what you think I can do, he said, essentially, to heal the nation and to bring them together. Let me tell you what I plan to do. Now, I'm a liberal Democrat. You know that. And I was not a political supporter of President Trump, though I defended him on the floor of the Senate and will continue to oppose these foolish efforts to uh, impeach and, and remove him after he's left office, efforts which I think hurt the Democratic Party as much as they do the Republican Party and certainly hope help uh, hurt uh, President Biden's agenda by diverting attention from the future and looking back to the past. But let me tell you what I intend to do. I intend to write a letter to my old friend, Joe Biden. Uh, I intend to offer my help and say, look, uh, I have some credibility uh, with conservatives. I have some credibility with people who voted against you and with people who voted for uh, President uh, Trump. I have some credibility because I stood up for the Constitution and standing up for the Constitution, I stood up for the rights of President Trump not to be impeached the first time around, not to be removed and not to be removed the second time around. This time I'm not going to be his official lawyer, but I will certainly make the case in the court of public opinion. So, Mr. President uh, Biden, I have some credibility, and I'm offering myself up to help you 
uh, bring about this kind of unity, to end this kind of divisiveness. I'm happy to try to appeal to people who hold me in high regard because of what I did neutrally during the past uh, four years, especially during the past year. So here, I want to help. I want to bring this country together. Yeah, I'm going to remain a Democrat. At least I'm going to remain a Democrat as long as the Democrats remain Democrats. If the Democrats become extreme left-wingers uh, a la the squad, um, I'm not going to any longer be able to be a Democrat. But but I'm a Biden Democrat, basically. I'm a Clinton Democrat. I'm a Ted Kennedy uh, Democrat. Um you know, I, I supported all of those candidates. I'm a mainstream centrist uh, Democrat, liberal Democrat, anti-radical. I'm more opposed to radicals on the left than I am to conservatives. I'm even more opposed to racist, uh, white supremacists, bigots, extremists on the right. But I oppose all extremism. I'm a, a centrist liberal Democrat. And so, President Biden, how can I help? I'd like all of you to respond to that call as well. Look, when we elect a new president, uh, when Donald Trump was elected four years ago, I didn't vote for him. I voted for Hillary Clinton, but I wished him well immediately. And I said, I'm rooting for you. I always root for the incumbent president, whether I voted for him or her or against them. I root for our president. I want to see our nation successful. This morning, before I did my show today, The Dirt Show, I was on Russian television uh, talking to their main channel. And they asked me what can be done to create closer relationships between Russia and the United States. And I pointed out the problems. I said, problems won't go away. The problems over Ukraine won't go away. The problems in Syria won't go away. There are a lot of problems that will continue to exist. But I think Joe Biden is going to try his best to reset the relationship between the United States and Russia. I think he's going to see China as the biggest competitor and perhaps create closer ties between the United States and Russia in a united front against China. I think he's also going to try to improve relations with China. That's who he is. He's not a separator and a divider. He's a uniter. Now, there's a time for separation and division. Uh, we have to separate ourselves from the bigotry. We have to separate ourselves from hate. We have to separate ourselves from countries who are thinking ill of us and want to do us harm, like Iran. I don't know what his policy is going to be toward Iran. We heard from Secretary of State-designate uh, uh, Blinken that we're not jumping back into the Iran deal so quick. We want to make sure that the new Iran deal, if we would enter into it, is longer and stronger. I love those two words, longer. It has to exist at least for a quarter of a century, maybe longer. And stronger, it has to provide for real, real inspection, real ability to stop Iran from developing a nuclear arsenal. Because I have to tell you, as I've said here on this show before, Iran, they ought to know this, they will never develop a nuclear arsenal. Why? because Israel will do whatever it has to to stop that from happening. Can you blame them? A country of Holocaust survivors where six million of their parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts were murdered by Nazis because uh, Jews didn't have power and strength? Can you blame a country for saying, 
We're not going to allow a neighboring country that has sworn to destroy us, that has promised to blow up Tel Aviv because Israel is a one-bomb nation. Can you blame Israel for taking whatever steps is necessary, whether it includes assassinating scientists, technological warfare involving uh, computers, or an actual military attack. I guarantee you Israel will never allow, no matter who the President of the United States is, no matter who the Prime Minister of Israel is, Israel will never allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons. And I think Iran ought to understand that, and I think the United States ought to understand that. And I'm anxiously waiting to see what the policy of the Biden administration is going to be. I think Tony Blinken has the right approach. I'm worried about Wendy Sherman. She's number two in the State Department. She's the one who made the deal, who wrote the terrible, terrible Iran deal uh, four or five years ago. So I'm nervous about that. But nervousness doesn't mean necessarily criticism now. I keep an open mind. So I want to hear from you. What do you think he can do? What, what steps can he take to move closer and bring us all together as a nation. What issues can he focus on about which there is consensus, about which every American agrees? Uh, let me propose uh, one or two. I'm sure there'll be some disagreement. The environment. The environment affects us all. Uh, climate change affects us all. No, there are some climate change deniers. I'm not talking to you, the climate change deniers, the people who think there's no such thing as, as climate change. Of course there is. Every scientist will tell you. There is. There'll be a disagreement as to how much human factors influence it and how much it's a natural phenomenon that occurs. You know, you can have some disagreements as to matters of degree, but we do experience climate change. The planet is in trouble. Um, you don't have to believe the uh, extreme view that we'll come to an end in so-and-so years unless we reduce carbon, whatever. You don't have to agree with all of that. But I think everybody agrees that it would be a good thing to slow down the environmental damage that's occurring. Now, on the other side, you don't want to lose a lot of jobs. So there was a big dispute over whether we should be in the Paris climate accords or not. Uh, President Trump took a view that uh, China wasn't doing its job, other countries weren't doing their job, that all the burden fell on us. We are a great consumer and producer of uh, carbon and, and environmental pollution. We're not nearly as bad as some other countries, but we're not so good. Um, but the argument that the Trump administration made is too much of the burdens on us, too little of the burdens on China and other countries, and it will take away too many jobs. Okay, if you were advising President Biden about how to deal with the climate, what would you say to him? You wouldn't say don't do anything, and you wouldn't say end all of industry and stop all of everything we're doing to preserve the environment. Some balance has to be struck. Um, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know the details of fracking and coal and all of that. But what is it you would tell him uh, to do? What is it you would tell him to do about immigration? Again, I think we have a consensus about some aspects of immigration. We are a nation of immigrants. I would not be here today running the Der Show if my grandparents, great-grandparents, great-grandparents in my case, hadn't made the decision to come to the United States at the end of the 
19th century on one side of my family, the beginning of the 20th century on the other side of my family. We are a nation of, of immigrants. Uh, and I think everybody understands that we renew the lifeblood of this country when we bring in uh, immigrants who help the country. We've had immigration in this country that has actually boosted uh, the levels uh, of accomplishment, um, tremendous contributions that immigrants have made uh, to this country. Some of the greatest Americans have been immigrants. So I think we all want more immigration, more lawful immigration. But what do we do with the millions of people who are in this country today without documentation? What do we do with their children who were brought here when they were one or two years old or who were born here? They're citizens. What do we do when you have children who are citizens, but their parents are not? These are complicated problems that President Biden wants to confront. I hope he confronts it in a way that brings us together. So call me and tell me how you think he should solve the problem of immigration. And don't tell me build walls. Okay, you know, you can have your walls. Those are symbolic. What do you do with the millions of people who are here? Walls will just keep them in, not keep them out. What do you do with DACA? What do you do with our real problems? What do you do with the relationship between immigration and employment? These are complicated problems that we can solve better if we are united than if we're divided. What do we do with China? We know China cheats. We know that China doesn't play by the rules. On the other hand, China will soon perhaps surpass us as being the most powerful economy in the world, China is a brilliant country. I mean, the Chinese culture goes back, Confucius and, and beyond that. Uh, we should be trying to work together with them to solve the world's problems. We don't need, you know, there used to be a time when you thought you needed an enemy. You couldn't be really a country if you didn't have an enemy. You know, we had enemies all throughout our history, starting with the British. They were our enemies, the War of 1812. We then had our own enemies, as Pogo said. Uh, we have found the enemy, and it is us. During the Civil War, we were our enemy, and we fought this horrible civil war. Then we had these other wars, the Spanish-American War. We had the First World War. We had enemies. We had the Second World War, a grievous, horrible uh, enemy. Then the Korean War, and then the Vietnam War. Now we're in kind of pseudo-wars. We don't need enemies. I would hope Joe Biden would bring us uh, four years of, of peace, uh, four years of stability and tranquility. You know, uh, Bill Clinton uh, once complained that uh, his eight years, there were no crises, and he couldn't prove what a great president he would have been had there been a crisis. All of our great presidents obviously have presided over crises. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, all presided over crises. Um, you know, there's, a, there's supposed to be an old Chinese curse. I never know if it's true or not. May you live in interesting times. We don't need that curse today. My blessing for America for the next four years is may you live in boring times. May it be less interesting. May there be less conflict. Maybe we can just have a period of boring, predictable, stability, normalcy. We need it. When you come out of surgery, you don't go and do your exercise right away. You rest, you relax, you get better. We've been through surgery. We're going through it now. Even the pandemic 
which you would have thought would unite us, has divided us. Masks, yes, no. Uh, Vaccines, how quickly will they roll out? State, federal, government, whose fault is it? Why are people dying? Who are we going to blame? You know, let's unite. Let's try to roll out the vaccine as quickly as possible. Let's agree with the priorities, who goes first, who goes second. Let's try to fight this pandemic as a united country. We don't need division. We don't need excitement. We don't need drama. We need boring, consistent normalcy. And I'm not suggesting Joe Biden's a boring guy (laughs) compared to Donald Trump. He's a boring guy. Compared to Donald Trump, everybody's a boring guy. I mean, but, you know, Trump lost the election. And we opted both in the popular vote and the electoral vote for a more centrist, more uh, consistent, uh, less dramatic uh, candidate. And so, again, my challenge to you, my listeners, maybe I'll devote a whole show just to getting your points of view on this. I'll start out with a small introduction, but take maybe a lot of uh, phone calls and comments because I want you to tell me, particularly you who voted against Biden and who voted for Trump, tell me what Biden can do to bring us together, what Biden can do to persuade you to give him a chance. And I will get that information to President Biden. I will get it to him through people I know in his administration or through him directly. Just you tell me what he can do to persuade you. I'm not asking you to tell me what he can do to persuade you to become a Democrat or to vote for him for re-election. I'm not talking politics. I'm asking for you to tell me what he can do that will persuade you that he means it, as he's persuaded me that he means it, when he says he wants to bring us together, he wants to heal us, he wants to reduce the differences and the tensions, he wants us to listen to each other. I would hope he would have said as well, and he implied it, but he didn't say it as strongly as I hoped he would. And we should not shut down the marketplace of ideas. Let's not censor each other. Let's not have the social media put people on blacklists, take them off the platform. Let's end that form of division by censorship. If we're going to listen to each other, we have to have an opportunity to hear each other. Put President Trump back on Twitter. Put him back on Facebook. If you don't like what he says, argue with him. Condemn him. Do whatever you want, but he's now a private citizen. And he's entitled to get his message out just the way we're entitled to get our messages out. So let's end this social media censorship. Let's end this cancel culture. Let's end this McCarthyism that we're going through, which divides even more. Let's stop these petitions to take degrees away from people who uh, may have supported President Trump or worked on his administration. That's not going to bring us together. That's going to divide us, and let's end this foolish impeachment and trial. That's looking backward, not looking forward. That's just going to divide us more. If I were President Biden, I would have said, I don't support this. I don't support this impeachment. I don't support this trial. It hurts my cause. It hurts my agenda. It hurts me from moving forward. Takes my hundred days away from me and gives it back to President Trump, now former President Trump. So both sides have something to do. But today, my message is to President Trump supporters, 
Tomorrow, I'll have a message for the Democrats. I can combine them together. I know what the Democrats have to do to bring us together. They have to stop this foolish drive toward impeachment and removal. That's the first thing they have to do. They have to stop these efforts to try to take degrees away from people and stop people from speaking on campus and recriminations. They have to remember Abraham Lincoln with malice toward none and charity to all. We heard that last night from several people. It is one of the most remarkable phrases in the lexicon of American history, with malice toward none and charity to all. Democrats, you beat them. You won. You have your president. Stop it. Stop the recriminations. Stop trying to go back to the past. Move forward. That's what you can do. And now I want to hear from the pro-Trump, anti-Biden people, voters. What can Biden do to now bring us together to persuade you that he means it when he says that we are stronger as a nation when we are together than we are when we're divided. So you have homework. Your homework is call me, leave a message, leave a question, leave a comment, but be constructive. Tell me, don't complain. We've had enough complaining. Tell me in a positive way what Joe Biden can do to help heal the country and to persuade you that he really means it when he says he wants unity rather than division. So that's your homework assignment. I want all of you to get A pluses. Please call The Dirt Show. And let's begin with our first call today. Uh, my question has to do with your statement on a previous show where you discussed Biden being a centrist candidate. Uh, for the most part, I agree with this. Um, however, I've noticed uh, the executive action being discussed that Biden will take on ordering a whole-of-government racial equity review, uh, which will be led by Domestic Policy Council Director Susan Rice, which will require each department to conduct a baseline review of whether its policies disadvantage a demogra uh, demographic group with the goal of achieving the option to, quote, more equitably allocate federal resources. Um, I just noticed over the last several years that identity politics is running rampant in the Democratic Party, and Biden has engaged in this with his past statements. My question is, how concerned are you that he or Kamala Harris will enact policies that claim to be about equality, but actually disfavor certain groups based off the assumption and generalization that any disparity equates to systemic inequity? basically leading to equity or quality of outcome policies. Do you think this is the direction we're going in as a country? Uh, does the executive branch have the authority to enact policies like this? Uh, what are your thoughts? I'd love to hear it. Uh, thank you so much. Great question. And of course, the answer is going to be a matter of degree. Uh, I think we all want equality. Uh, let me be very clear. I've said this before. We are not a systemically racist country. We are a systemically anti-racist country. What do I mean by that? systemically, everything is opposed to racism. The government's opposed to racism. Our universities are opposed to racism. Our media is opposed to racism. Black Lives Matter is the most prominent and popular brand and organization in America. Systemically, we're very anti-racist as compared to when I grew up, where we were a systemically racist country, where there was legal discrimination before Brown versus Board of Education, before the civil rights law. Systemically, we've moved away from racism. Systemically, we're anti-racist. There's still too much racism in this country. There's still too much racism by individuals, but the racists don't win. They don't get the support of the system. The system is opposed to racism. And what we're seeing is uh, 
the system under President uh, Biden uh, moving even more away from what would be called systemic racism and towards systemic anti-racism. We have a lot of work to do because there's far too much racism in this country. There's racism, particularly against people of color, but there's all kinds of racism. We have too many bigots in this country. There are too many anti-Catholic people. There are too many anti-Jewish people. There are too many anti-Hispanic people. There are too many anti-Black people. There are too many anti-Asian people. We do have systemic racism against Asian Americans in many American universities. That is systemic, and I think that uh, will be proved in lawsuits that are going around the country today. So we have to be careful how we use the word systemic. It could have two meanings. One, that it's pervasive. Well, yeah, it is pervasive. So we might say in that respect, it's systemic. I don't think that's what systemic means. To me, systemic means, does it come from the top? Uh, Does it come from the top down? Is it imposed by the government? Uh, And the answer is no. From the top down, we have systemic anti-racism. It's from the bottom up that we have continuing racism. You know, when I was a student at Yale Law School, there was systemic anti-Semitism. It was systemic. I was first in my class, uh, editor-in-chief of the Law Journal, going to be a Supreme Court law clerk. I got turned down by 32 out of 32 Wall Street firms. They all practiced systemic anti-Semitism. That was part of the system. When I went to complain to the dean of Yale Law School, he said, hey, that's the system we live in. We have essentially an apartheid legal system. We have the WASP firms, the Jewish firms, the Catholic firms. Uh, there, were no, uh, there, was, there was no room for women, uh, African-Americans, openly gay people. That was systemic bigotry. That's over. And uh, what we have now are very great pockets of bigotry of all kinds, uh, white supremacy, all of that. But it's not systemic. It's anti-systemic. I would argue that within our criminal justice system, maybe one can argue there is some still remnants of systemic racism in the sense that so many more people of color are convicted, tried, charged, than the proportion of people who commit uh, crimes. And the system is biased uh, against uh, people of color um, in, in the criminal justice system. But we're moving away from that. And the trend is clearly in the right direction. Um, and what we're seeing, I think, with the uh, Biden administration is an attempt to remedy the remnants of, and the deep remnants of of racism. Maybe they'll go too far. Maybe they'll introduce identity politics. Maybe affirmative action based on race will operate at every element of uh, the government. I hope not. I hope the goal is equality of opportunity rather than equality of outcome. But we'll wait and see. Great question. Thank you. My question is, Thomas Jefferson, I believe, had said that he believes that every so often we should write a new constitution because things change. Now, we've never done that in this country before. My question is, do you think we should write a new constitution? Because so many things have changed in our country since the founding. It's a great question, and I'll answer it with one word, uh, Israel. Um, When Israel was first established, the first law was, we're going to get a constitution. It's now been 72 years, they don't have a constitution. Why? You cannot get a constitution except at the beginning except when parties don't exist, except when divisions aren't as great. We were so lucky. We formed phenomenal constitution. 
deeply flawed with all kinds of problems. Yes, systemic racism was in our Constitution. Obviously, the way African-American slaves were counted as three-fifths of human beings and all kind of other provisions of our laws and Constitution. But um, we were lucky. We established the Constitution early in our history. If we try to get a Constitution today, we'd be in the position Israel's in. Israel cannot get a Constitution because they can't get consensus over the relationship between the religious aspects of the community and the secular aspects, between Jews and Arabs, between um, other groups of people, Sephardim and Ashkenazim. Uh, you just can't get it. Everybody, when you try to form a constitution now with a mature political society, everybody asks just one question. Will it be the question my grandmother used to ask? When I would come back from a Brooklyn Dodger game and say, Grandma, the Brooklyn Dodgers won, my grandmother with a thick Yiddish accent would say, yeah, but was it good or bad for the Jews? You know, she had a singular view of the world having come from Poland. Today, if we started a constitution, the first question would be, is it good or bad for the Democrats or the Republicans? Take, for example, the issue of a statehood for the District of Columbia. Of course, the people of the District of Columbia should have full citizenship rights, but we know that if the District of Columbia gets stated, the Democrats get two more senators forever and ever and ever. So that becomes a political decision. And so there are alternatives being suggested. Create a small capital, District of Columbia, maybe just a couple of square miles around where the White House, the Capitol, the Supreme Court, all the government buildings, and then the rest of residential District of Columbia should be ceded to Maryland, where it originally was, or Virginia, and the citizens will become part of those states and can vote. That wouldn't change the nature of the Senate. Uh, the, it would change it a little bit. Um, Maryland would become clearly a blue state. It, it is. And if some went to Virginia, Virginia, which is now a purple state, would again become a, a, a blue state. The same thing with Puerto Rico. Uh, today, politics determines whether or not you want two more uh, Democratic uh, senators. And so if we ever try to get a new constitution, it wouldn't happen. We wouldn't get a First Amendment. Feminists would say, no, 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 let's have... Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech except pornography uh, or except sexism. Um, uh, many Jews would say Congress shall make no law abridging speech except Holocaust denial. African-Americans would say no law abridging speech except no racism. Uh, everybody would have exceptions and everybody would say free speech for me, but not for thee. So we are so lucky to have a constitution that has endured for uh, 230 or so years it ain't broken enough to fix it. We have an amending process. It's been used 26 or so times. Um, let's continue to operate within the Constitution. Let's not tamper with the Bill of Rights. For example, if I were writing the Constitution, I would not have a Second Amendment. Uh, I don't think guns belong in a Constitution. That's my personal view. But it's there. The Second Amendment is there, and I don't want to abolish it because if you, if I abolish the Second Amendment, you'll abolish the First Amendment or the Fifth Amendment or the Sixth Amendment or the Eighth Amendment. You've got to accept imperfections. The perfect is the enemy of the good, and we have a good Constitution. So let's not uh, accept Jefferson's advice on this one. Let's not rewrite our Constitution because we'll never get it done. Good morning. It's Harvey and Henderson. The latest rumor floating around is that Trump may have pardoned himself, but he isn't disclosing it until he finds out whether or not they come after him. That sounds a little far-fetched to me. 
So I'm coming to the professor for the facts. Okay, thank you. Love the show. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks a lot. You used my favorite Yiddish word, farfetched. Doesn't it sound Yiddish? Far-fetched? It's an English word. Far-fetched. Uh, okay, it is far-fetched. Um, uh, a president can't uh, pardon himself secretly. Uh, all pardons have to be made public. Uh, these pardons were made public. We've seen the list. Um, I was disappointed that some people who I wanted to have pardons, Julian Assange, others, uh, were not on the list. Um, uh, some famous, some not famous, some people you've never heard of. Um, some very good people were on uh, the list, but the list's public, and President Trump's name's not on the list. So, as my friends in Brooklyn would say, forget about it. He's not pardoned himself. Um, I don't think he should have pardoned himself. I think that was the right decision, but uh, your question was not far-fetched. This is Robert from West Tisbury, Massachusetts. I have two questions. The first is, you have said that an impeachment requires either a criminal or a criminal-like act. Can you give an example of something that is criminal-like but not criminal that would constitute an impeachable offense? And the second question, which perhaps is related to the first, is a hypothetical situation. Let's say that President Trump was informed prior to the January 6th rally that there was a likelihood, an imminent likelihood of violent action if he were to speak at that event, and he went ahead and spoke only. Would that prior knowledge constitute a criminal act considering the ruling in Brandenburg? Thank you. Great, great, great questions. Uh, let me take the second one first. Um, and I like to answer questions by sometimes giving hypotheticals. Let's assume that Martin Luther King was about to give his great speech, I Have a Dream. I was there. I was way, way, way in the back with uh, two judges, one of whom I had clerked for. And um, by the way, 90% of that uh, day were boring, 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 boring speeches by this union leader and that guy and the other guy. And then Martin Luther King got up and gave his fantastic speech. Let's assume he had been told in advance that if he gave that speech, there would be violence. Uh, no, I don't think he could be charged under Brandenburg. Or let's assume that uh, John Lewis was told when he walked across that uh, famous bridge that there would be violence. Now, there may be a difference if you're told there will be violence directed against you and if you're told there will be violence by people who support you. That's a moral difference, but I don't think it's a constitutional difference. Um, as to your second question, what would be criminal-type behavior that's not technically criminal? Let's assume a president um, gave a bribe uh, while outside of the country, um, uh, in the Ukraine, uh, or in Russia, or in China. A president accepted a bribe or offered a bribe. Uh, that might not technically be an American crime. Or let's assume that he committed a crime, let's assume he was a president with an eight-year term, and he committed a crime uh, seven years uh, earlier that would be beyond the statute of limitations, which is generally five years, sometimes six. That's criminal-type behavior, but it's not a crime. What I'm saying is it doesn't have to have all the elements of a crime. You don't have to get a convictable offense. But it has to be criminal-type behavior. Remember what the Constitution says, treason, bribery, or other, other high crimes and, not or, and misdemeanors. All of those categories are criminal, criminal-like, 
Misdemeanor is a crime. Do you know in common law you could be executed for a misdemeanor? There were capital misdemeanors. And Blackstone, who was the guru of uh, the law at the time our Constitution was written, talked about misdemeanors being a species of crime, a serious type of species of crime, not a felony, but a species of crime. So the framers had in mind criminal behavior, criminal type behavior, but perhaps not technical criminal behavior. And so those are some examples. Um, There are others, I'm sure, that would come to mind. But the idea of somebody being impeached for abuse of power, every president has been accused of abusing power, obstruction of Congress. It's the job of a president under our system of checks and balances not to give in to Congress, but to challenge them in courts of law and courts of public opinion. So the first impeachment was clearly unconstitutional. This one is a little different because it does charge a crime. It charges incitement to whatever insurrection. Um, That probably is criminal type behavior, which would satisfy the impeachment criteria, but there just isn't evidence that it happened. Uh, uh, If he were tried for incitement, he'd be acquitted under the Brandenburg principle. So again, uh, great, great questions. Keep them coming. These are terrific questions. These are the kinds of questions I love to get when I was teaching law at Harvard for 50 years. Hello, Professor Dershowitz. It's an honor to be calling you. It's a blessing that one of the greatest legal minds in America is available to the citizenry via phone call. I have a question for you concerning the impeachment of Donald Trump. Who would be the presiding officer of this uh, trial? Uh, I guess the Constitution says that in the case of impeachment of the President of the United States, the Chief Justice shall preside. But given the fact that Donald Trump is no longer president, who will preside over this hearing? And if John Roberts does preside over the trial. Can he move to have the trial um, stopped because the articles of impeachment say that he is to preside over uh, the trial of the president, but Donald Trump is no longer the president? Thanks, Professor, and have a great day. Another great, great question. You're absolutely right. The Constitution requires the Chief Justice to preside, and the reason for that is the Chief Justice is not among the people who will become president if a president is impeached and a vice president is impeached. He's not in the line of succession. Also, chief justices don't generally run for president, so they wanted a neutral person. But what happens if a president is impeached while he's president, as Donald Trump was in the second impeachment, but then is put on trial as a private citizen? I think the chief justice is going to have to make that decision. And knowing John Roberts and having an enormous amount of respect for him, I remember him as a student. I remember him as a judge. I've met him as a a justice, the chief justice. I think he's going to decline. I think he's going to say, no, that's not my proper role to preside over the trial of an ex-president. I don't think he'll offer an opinion as to whether the trial is valid or not, but I don't think he will agree to preside. Now, What if the Senate asks him to preside or orders him to preside? No, I think under our system of separation of powers and checks and balances, he has the right, indeed, I think, the obligation to say, no, uh, I'm not going to engage in an unconstitutional act that is presiding over the trial of a private citizen, even one who was impeached while he was president. I have given up trying to predict how judges and justices will act, but I think that would be the the proper thing for him to say. Then who becomes the presiding judge? Well, it becomes the vice president of the United States, the presiding officer. 
the vice president of the United States may very well be a candidate for president in 2024. After all, President Biden's the oldest person ever to be sworn in as president of the United States, 78 years old. He'll be 82. Um, that's my age. Uh, hey, I'm feeling like I'm up to running for president. Nobody vote for me, but I have the energy to do it. But um, it's certainly possible that uh, um, uh, Vice President Harris will run. And should she preside over a trial whose purpose it is to say that Donald Trump can't run against you because he is going to be disqualified? That would raise some questions. So, so who do you then get to preside? Well, the answer is you shouldn't have a trial. The framers of the Constitution never intended for there to be a trial of a retired or a president whose term has ended. And the fact that the Chief Justice presides is evidence. The framers would have resolved that question. Remember that several state constitutions at the time of the framing of our constitution, several state constitutions did provide for a person to be impeached after they left office. That was true in England as well. It could have easily been put into our constitution. It was not. The words of the constitution seem clear that only a sitting president or a sitting office holder. We had one case early on in our history in 1876. It was a mistake. And the guy was acquitted because 23 senators voted that he uh, there was no jurisdiction in the Senate. I have an article in today's Wall Street Journal uh, all about that, uh, making the case against trying this president. Please uh, read my article in the Wall Street Journal today and, and call me and tell me whether you're persuaded by its logic. I'm sure there will be letters and op-eds opposing my point of view, and I'd love to hear from you as to whether you think my op-ed in today's Wall Street Journal is correct or wrong. But I think the Chief Justice should not, and I think will not, preside if there is a trial at all. I'm still hoping there won't be a trial and President Biden can move on. Which brings me to my concluding statement. Please, your homework assignment. You, you're not passive listeners here. You have a job to do. This is like a class. You have to sit at the edge of your seat when you listen to my show, and you have to say, He's wrong. I want to respond. I want to argue with him. Well, here you have a homework assignment. Tell me what President Biden can do to persuade you that he really means it when he wants to bring our country together. So let me give you the number because it's a homework assignment. So you got to do it. The number is 216-710-0050. And please keep your comments. You remember when I used to have exams, I had word limits. So I'm giving you a word limit. 60 seconds. 30 seconds is better. 60 seconds is maximum. We can't put calls on if they exceed 60 seconds. Now, please also continue to subscribe on Rumble. We're over 80,000. We're moving up in all of our platforms. So subscribe, listen, but most important, do your homework. I'm Grady. See you on the next Dirt Show. An important part of the Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.